This is the Progressive Commentary Hour. Our theme today is a continuation of looking at the deeper underlying social pathology of how science has been corrupted in different areas and the consequences to both the scientists and physicians and public health officials working in the field who want to do the right thing, do do good research, do good application of medical principles by following legitimate independent science But how do they know they're doing that when so much of what we're told to do and even dictated to do, and especially physicians, if you don't do this, you could lose your license by the state medical boards. And if you continue not to follow our dictates of what we call the right science and the right medicine and the right public health, then we're going to pillar you on the front pages of the New York Times and through all of medicine, all of science. But you say... How is this possible when we have over 900,000 practicing physicians and upwards of four or more million scientists? Surely there's a large group of those people who will not allow themselves to be misguided or to be threatened or intimidated into doing something they know from personal and professional experience does not work. We're going to explore that with my guest, Dr. Robert Malone. He's an internationally recognized physician and scientist. He also was the original inventor of the technology behind the mRNA vaccine delivery platform. His research is focused on gene delivery and formulations and vaccines. He has published over 100 peer-reviewed papers and in the past served as a chairperson on the Department of Defense and the Department of Human Health and Services committees. Therefore, he is highly revered and respected for his input and his unique approach to science. Dr. Malone has also worked with groups developing clinical trials on repurposed drugs targeting the SARS-2 virus. He has been now a fierce, outspoken critic of the government's COVID policies, at least certain policies, including the COVID vaccines, which he and his wife, from what I understand, took. So you would get no one more, maybe Paul Offit, more of an advocate for vaccination. And yet they tried to say he's anti-vaccine. Well, to the contrary, he simply wants safe and effective vaccines. And he believed that this was the case, as did everyone else, until they saw the truth. And now he's looking at the gross conflicts of interest with private industry, something the average physician, pharmacist, nurse, the people in the front line of administering health care, they don't have the time, nor do they have the expertise. Not even our best investigative journalists have been able to find all of these intimate connections between here's a public policy, follow it. Well, okay, who's behind that? No one. And then we find out there are a lot of people behind it. He recently authored a new book, the lies my government told me, and the better future coming, which breaks down many of the lies the government has told us during the past uh, pandemic years, and he puts them into a larger economic and political context. 
He received his medical degree from Northwestern University and was a global research scholar, rare position at Harvard Medical School, later working at the Salk Institute, another highly respected institute, and teaching at several medical schools. He is also the founder of the Malone Institute, which is dedicated to returning integrity to government in the biological sciences and medicine. His website is robertwmalonemd.com, and Robert writes a newsletter that can be found on Substack under Who is Robert Malone? Nice to have you back with us. Thanks for having me here, Gary. And uh, I'm, I, uh, we've chewed up a good uh, five or ten minutes of our broadcast on all that intro. Uh, thanks for the glowing words, but let's get into the topic. You got it. I've noticed, if I'm correct, that you've redirected some of your energy to the bigger global picture, the world of the global elites who operate through organizations like the World Economic Forum, World Health Organization, the Tavistock Institute, the Atlantic Council, Council on Foreign Relations, among others. And of course, these are the movers and shakers, the policy makers, who strategize and steer the course towards trends that are most profitable to this small sliver of the world population and at the expense of everyone else, including our own sovereignty and integrity as human beings, our personal freedoms, and even the exercise of free will. Unless, of course, people submit to being obedient servants to their agenda. Having said that, one of my deeper concerns is our civilization's onward forward march to establish as a metaphor what Sir Thomas Huxley called the church scientific back in the mid-19th century, calls for a reductionist scientific materialist society to replace religious faith. So when we heard Anthony Fauci identify himself as the science, this is the ushering in of a regime based upon science rather than universal ethics, morals, and even free will. You might remember that many of the most ardent skeptic atheists, such as Sam Harris and Jerry Coney and P.Z. Meyer and Steve Novell, and others who are largely neuroscientists and evolutionary biologists don't believe in free will. In other words, this ideology claims we are little more than automated machines. And that kind of worldview can open up the floodgates to unimaginable problems. As a scientist medical doctor who's gone head-to-head with your profession on many of these issues, could you tell us what you now can turn around, look at your career, look where we're at, and give us a more broad-based view of the new science which has become the dominant religion. And what is the major Achilles heel in this materialistic worldview? The forum is yours. Well, that's uh, quite a scope that you just laid out uh, in the history of uh, the euphemism that's often used as scientism. That's uh, technically not quite accurate. Scientism is the belief that the only things that are true are what are detectable material things. Uh, And so scientism is uh, really almost a theology based on a particular frame of reference. And so I think some of the neuroscientists you were just quoting on or citing are of this school that uh, gives rise to this logic that we as human beings reflect uh, various evolutionary drivers, such as selection to only perceive a 
relatively narrow bandwidth of the available information around us through our eyes, ears, or others, and through basically the cutoffs in terms of wavelengths that we can perceive being those that are most adaptive for human beings as they travel through the world and interact and try to pass their genetics off uh, to future generations. This, this is uh, allied with Dawkins' thesis about the selfish gene. And uh, it's, a, it's a worldview that now has lent itself to the logic of Yuval Harari, who perhaps belongs with the other names you just mentioned, at the at the outer edge in his thesis and key work homo deus uh that, that uh, man god is the future that we are all gods now uh this is a a logic that's been promoted by many over time uh and the belief that uh it is now in the hands of humans to guide their own future evolution and that that future evolution should be driven towards fusion of man and machine. This is the essence of transhumanism, which I argue is yet another false religion. Uh, what, what we have are folks, in a way, from my point of view, this represents scientific hubris. Uh, and it's a type of hubris that I've encountered throughout my entire professional life as a German scientist and, and young scholar, this uh, rise of a scientific elite, which dominates funding, uh, dominates journals, jo dominates editorial boards, and has a profound belief in, in itself as a, uh, a bastion of really uh, intellectual superiority that these individuals that have risen to the top of the scientific pyramid, we could call them the uh, Brahmins or high priests of science uh, that capture uh, so much power and also often capture access to information media, uh, truly represent a uh, intellectually superior caste, which uh, is uh, justified in a sense, in a Darwinian sense, uh, as, as being the best of the best in the same way that uh, the financial elite often see themselves as a, a Darwinian best of the best in, of humanity because of their financial success and dominance. And all of this leads to this hubristic sense of infallibility uh, superiority uh, um, and, and justification in imposing uh, whatever frame of of re reference belief system uh, solution set uh, might be trendy within that cohort of uh, self-defined intellectual, financial, and scientific elite. Uh, and of course, this feeds right into, as you point out, the interests of those uh, fraction of a fraction of a percent that uh, truly control world affairs in, in many ways through their ability to exert uh, um, or impose or, or act through 
informal networks of power and alliance, as well as through formal structures involving uh, the ability to control governments and world affairs largely through financial channels. And uh, science absolutely, in my experience, has come to a point and, and it's an open question whether it was ever any different, where uh, highly financed uh, senior persons who have assembled uh, functionally uh, networks of uh, trainees, largely, and other affiliates uh, and basically battle each other for control over uh, what is accepted truth and the resources that flow from that. Uh, they compete with each other through these informal networks in a way that resembles Italian city-states uh, in the days of Machiavelli or uh, um, uh, other, other networks of influence famous in uh, Italy, uh, such as uh, La Costa Nostra, the, the mafia. They, they behave uh, as uh, um, uh, cliques that exist within guilds. I assert that we absolutely have in the modern medical industrial complex the rise of dominant guilds and sub-guilds as represented by the uh, specialty boards in particular and their associations, which have become easy uh, influence points for the interests of uh, various large commercial entities that we might call the pharmaceutical industrial complex, as well as the cen censorship industrial complex, can basically act through these pressure points and of, of the uh, guild organizations that uh, manage these networks of influence and uh, influence those organizations, AMA being a notable example, but there are many, many others, all the specialty boards, uh, to uh, promote and enforce the uh, frame of reference, belief system, practices, and commercial interests of these uh, commercial organizations that financially benefit from the expenses, uh, expenditures associated with uh, provision of medical care to humanity. Uh, you know, a major fraction of uh, the gross domestic product of the United States goes to medical care. It's enormously profitable. It's, it's right up there with the defense industrial complex and has come to behave in very similar ways. So I, I don't know if that's where you're going with what your your question uh, leading question was, but that's that's how I view all of this. And frankly, this journey into uh, darkness of the WEF and the corruption of the WHO and the uh, influence of UN and Agenda 2030 or Event 201 in the kind of more proximal micro scale, uh, this war game planning that happened in the fall of 2019 that seems to have been amazingly predictive for the dysfunctional 
public health response that we saw deployed during the corona crisis. Uh, I, in, in following the leads and trying to make sense out of all of this, in the context of developing this book, Lies My Government Told Me, uh, is what led me down all these rabbit holes uh, to find uh, for myself and discover for myself and then share with my readership uh, what I had concluded and discovered. And uh, it has it has been quite a journey and it's, it's required me to kind of sus suspend my normal reticence in speaking about such things. I've been criticized for uh, veering out of my swim lane or my core competence. And that's absolutely true. Uh, I haven't wanted to go down all these rabbit holes. My, my background and training that uh, supported this was as an undergraduate taking political science coursework. And in my wife's case, her undergraduate degree being in biological anthropology, this is, this is the, the toolkit intellectually that, that we've applied to this. But uh, what we've found as we've run down these various trails is abundant work from uh, true scholars with a depth of understanding that we could learn from and then attempt to simplify and provide context in the current to help our readership uh, make their own decisions about what has transpired and what is what are the implications as, as we move apparently towards a, a more globalized uh, world governance system, at least that's what's being advocated, and to explore what the potential consequences are but I absolutely concur that what we've had is the substitution of really one type of theology for another, uh, this theology of science and its priesthood uh, or a theology of, of uh, religion and belief that is more expansive and more all-encompassing uh, uh, we've, we've now, we're actively as a culture and as a government seeking to deny that uh, transcendent set of truths that exist and substitute uh, the seemingly objective, uh, tangible, uh, uh, measurable reality that is uh, purported to explain all uh, that is the uh, fundamental basis of scientism. Uh, so that's that's kind of how I see all this. I hope that addresses your leading question. It does. Thank you. It was very detailed. I have I had this thought that we were informed about a year and a half ago from a uh, from a psychologist that he believed what we were willingly lining up to take the red pill of being vaccinated and going through all the other things that we were supposed to go through, social distancing, wear the mask, etc., because we were suffering from a mass psychosis. However, we were also informed that, but that's not the scientists, the physicians, the nurses, the, the people who are educated in a given field, because they would clearly know 
what is superstition, what is good science from bad science, because they had the tools. They had to use those tools to get their degrees in, in their practice. And But I asked this question. One day, I pick up the New York Times, and I see the 12 misinformation people, and you are highlighted in the front page. And that's, to me, that, that was shocking, because looking at your background, you were sitting at the tables of power because of the accuracy and integrity of your information. You weren't just some person who had been hired uh, to fill in a blank. You were a person who was a progenitor of new information. And now, overnight, simply because you asked some wrong questions about the safety and efficacy of these vaccines or other parts of COVID protocol, you were suddenly not warned. You were not threatened. There was a tempted Total destroy you, because when you're pillared on the New York Times front page in the headline section, uh, that is not going to be something you can erase. And I'm thinking, wow, how many other scientists would come to your aid? I was thinking at the moment, will anyone come to your aid? There are 900,000 out there, or they take on the best and brightest, figuring if we completely destroy the best and brightest, then all the rest who are lesser than this person or these people we're destroying, they'll just back off and keep their mouth shut and do what they're supposed to do. 75% of the American population, without question or hesitation, took the vaccines and took the boosters, and now we're seeing the results. I'm sure that you're aware of the latest statistics from Dr. Jessica Rose, who, along with colleagues, did the best analysis yet. And she says, in an interview I did just three weeks ago, 500,000 dead Americans, more or less, 1.6 million with serious and permanent injuries, and 14 million with adverse effects, but will recover, and with a lot still not known, because none of the reporting systems were accurate. But, but now, if we had, we banned a vaccine back in 1976, when there was 23 deaths, and here we have 500,000, and not a single article condemning the vaccines, no one being interviewed who was uh, adversely affected, and uh, it, now the latest study shows that one out of every 25 people in the United States know someone who died from the vaccine. Well, suddenly we're getting multiple inputs, and these are not, these. they try to censor everything by controlling the websites. But now I'm thinking, what was it like to be one of those people who was, in effect, censored, red-pilled, and silenced by your own profession and did any of your medical colleagues throughout your career come forward and say, I'm standing with you? You, you, you would not have been irresponsible. You're, you may be attacked, but you're not on the wrong side of history and the truth. We're shoulder to shoulder with you. Or did you find yourself fairly much alone facing this almost indomitable power of the media against you, the medical profession against you, state medical boards against you, Anthony Fauci against you, and all represented by that article in the New York Times. So the New York Times article was fascinating, and it's just one of many. The one that was particularly egregious was the Atlantic Monthly article. Yeah. Uh, and it was it, that was written by uh, someone who usually, a young man who usually writes for the Chronicle of Higher Education on pro-wokeism issues. That's his, he has no scientific background. Uh, um, Business Insider, Mother Jones, Rolling Stone, 
uh, I can go on and on. There was a concerted wave of character assassination attempts, of course, Washington Post. Uh, and uh, the New York Times one came out kind of in the middle of that. And the reporter that I, I'm guilty, I tried to do my due diligence on her, uh, and I relied on a New York Times reporter that I had worked with previously when I was a whistleblower on the Jesse Gelsinger death at UPenn from uh, overdosing with an adenovirus vector vex, uh, um, gene therapy product. So uh, I was reassured that uh, Ms. Alba uh, was a fair and objective, and we invited her down to our home, uh, to the farm, to do the interviews. Uh, and uh, strangely, she had detailed information about uh, CIA and Michael Callahan. Uh, remembering now, and this is a focus in our new book on Cywar sovereignty and rogue government that we're nearing completion on. Uh, it, those of you, and I suspect you know very well, Gary, uh, Operation Mockingbird, COINTELPRO, and the uh, Mighty Wurlitzer, uh, these, these uh, uh, capabilities that have been developed through infiltration of the press by our intelligence community and uh, the FBI and its surveillance and disinformation campaigns uh, and division campaigns that have been deployed historically since the 60s. Operation Mockingbird having its origins in OSS in 1942 and then carrying through to the present. Uh, so it appears that Ms. Alba, when we finally did do the right diligence, uh, had been hired by the New York Times for the disinformation beat. So if I had seen that beforehand, I would have known what the writing of the wall is and I would have denied the uh, interview. Uh, strangely, when she came to the home, she had absolutely no interest in looking at any of the patents. Uh, we, we brought out all of our documentation about the history of mRNA vaccines and my role, the invention disclosures, the primary documentation, early laboratory results uh, and the initial patents. She was not interested in any, any of that. The, the appearance is that she was functioning as, as a CIA cutout and uh, based on her detailed insider knowledge of uh, CIA affairs. Uh, and um, after that article, that was the last article she wrote for the New York Times and then she was terminated uh, perhaps concurrent with, it appears concurrent with the dropping of a lot of the funding that the government had been providing to the press uh, to cover these uh, issues about uh, vaccine disinformation. Uh, many people forget that this was a major thrust area in government CDC funding. Uh, well over a billion dollars spent to uh, build, you know, support journalists to promote these articles. Uh, where there are others that stepped in. There's the cohort of physicians in the Physician Health Alliance group that I've been with all the way through. Uh, um, Ryan Cole, uh, FLCCC people uh, uh, um, that uh, supported me. But uh, 
my vaccinologist colleagues, let alone my uh, DOD public health or other colleagues, uh, nothing but crickets. Or uh, even worse, they appear to have been some of them involved in some of the kind of scurrilous claims that were made against me in some of these uh, articles that were unattributed. Uh, um, but uh, revealed detailed information that only they would know. So, uh, and, I, and I actually did have uh, one of my DOD colleagues, a GS-15, call me up personally and tell me that I better stop talking about these things or there would be consequences. So, so there's that. What, we, what has just been dropped in the last 48 hours was a investigational report by Jim Jordan that documents this uh, censorship industrial complex and the interaction between the federal government, the quote, election integrity partnership uh, led under the umbrella of, you mentioned it a moment ago, the Atlantic Council. Uh, and for those that are, are not like you and I, deep in the bowels of all of this, uh, suffice to say, if, if there is a bastion of deep state, as Cash Patel likes to use the term, in his new book, Government Gangsters, if there is a bastion of uh, the deep state, Atlantic Council would be absolutely one of those at the top. So the Atlantic Council assembled this election integrity partnership and this overall uh, public partnership, public-private partnership between CISA, this is the new coordinating propaganda censorship agency that, that spans FBI, DIA, CIA, et cetera, within the federal government, works for Homeland Security, and another group called GEC. Uh, they were the ones responsible for flagging potential dis or misinformation, that being anything different that somebody is saying from the approved narrative. That's you know the approved narrative as espoused by CDC or WHO. That's the way that worked. So if you said things different from the approved narrative, then you were spreading mis or disinformation. You were flagged by the government agencies. They would then toss these flags over to the Election Integrity Partnership. This was all built uh, before the last presidential election, uh, ostensibly to resist Russian disinformation influencing the election. Uh, we now know, for instance, one of the most influential things in the last election was the suppression of the Hunter Biden laptop story by the same types of people. Uh, Election Integrity Partnership uh, was led in significant part by Stanford Internet Observatory. So Stanford University's big operation there, uh, then uh, partnered with others that had special capabilities in mapping and tr tracking information on the internet and flagging it. And then once uh, processed and flagged that then got sent off to big tech, uh, Facebook, Twitter, uh, TikTok, YouTube, as information that was identified or, or individuals that were identified as needing to be uh, canceled, suppressed, deplatformed, et cetera. So that's the ecosystem. And this was built for election integrity. And then uh, together with the Trusted News Initiative for the BBC runs, uh, right before the election, it was transformed into uh, use to suppress mis and dis and malinformation relating to the vaccine products under the thesis that uh, we were in a national 
a crisis, a global crisis of a infectious disease that had occurred uh, crossed over from animals and was associated with a 3.4% case fatality rate, which happens to be exactly the case fatality rate that was used in the modeling for uh, event 201, by the way, uh, and was clearly fraudulent. Um, and it was reinforced by the uh, modeling group uh, at Imperial College London. Uh, and uh, we now know it was absolutely false. So you were mentioning some statistics that Jessica Rose and colleagues had devised concerning the excess all-cause mortality uh, that they believe is attributable to uh, public policies, I think, uh, not just the jab. Uh, and uh, that's very similar to modeling data that I've seen before because you have to factor in also the suppression of early treatment and withholding of ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, et cetera, uh, that has been shown to be very effective when deployed early uh, in substitution for very toxic uh, patented compounds such as remdesivir uh, that was promoted by Mr. Fauci. Uh, and was previously rejected for use for Ebola because it was so toxic, particularly renal toxicity, uh, and, and the uh, promotion of these uh, ventilation practices that clearly were uh, causing more harm than good. So uh, those numbers of 500, 600,000 excess deaths attributable to uh, um, poorly considered uh, public health policy that was propagated from top down onto all these physicians and medical systems and then reinforced through financial incentives uh, that you, uh, physicians and, and uh, uh, hospitals would uh, employ these top-down uh, strategies or protocols as opposed to the bottom-up uh, protocols that emerged uh, from frontline physicians using existing drugs and actually treating people. Now, there's another... Uh, set of statistical analyses that I cross-posted recently that dives into what were the true incidents of uh, mortality from COVID as opposed to deaths with a PCR-positive signal, which uh, Hopkins and the government assert is a million. Okay, so that, that's the official party line of million deaths. We hear it again and again. It's like safe and effective or uh, none of us are safe until all of us are safe. Uh, those are those are um, propaganda lines that have been that are repeated again and again. Uh, so uh, in this study, there was a deep dive into the uh, statistical basis of uh, true all-cause mortality, largely driven by the example of uh, the uh, true COVID deaths detected in Finland or Sweden, Sweden. As you recall, Sweden uh, took a kind of a modified, just let it rip policy. They, they didn't mandate the vaccines, although there were many that took vaccines. And uh, that estimate comes up as uh, COVID deaths in the United States being about 171,000 deaths attributable to COVID as a primary uh, cause of death. So uh, then we have uh, something like half a million plus excess mortality due to the gov top-down government-imposed uh, management practices, which includes the lockdowns, mask using, 
the psychological impact of those things, uh, the impact on the economy, which is largely buffered by injecting huge amounts of uh, yeah, currency, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, compared, so half a million compared to 170, uh, it's a poor bargain. Uh, and um, uh, so the assertion is, well, uh, the modeling uh, from Ferguson and the Imperial College is that we would have had many more than a million deaths uh, at 3.4% case fatality rate in the United States. And so look at how beneficial the vaccines were. Uh, this is, this is uh, a, I guess, fraudulent. Uh, this, this is not clear thinking. Uh, this is substituting, as, as Deborah Burke said, a hope uh, for data. Uh, in, in modeling, uh, particularly from the Ferguson group, has been repeatedly shown in infectious disease to grossly overestimate uh, uh, mortality. So that's, that's kind of where we got to and how this was reinforced. Here we have a case study, not that I'm unique, but it just happens that I was out front in many of these things. And as the election integrity uh, partnership was repurposed uh, for vaccine mis, dis, and malinformation, I got caught in that net before this report, the date that this report terminates its documentation. And I'm the last entry in that documentation. And, uh, and it's fascinating to look at and frankly, a little demoralizing for me. It's not very pleasant uh, to see how the sausage was made and how they turned on the switch for all this concerted uh, character assassination. But uh, my sin that that provoked these, and, and ident I'm identified as a repeat offender, uh, and uh, my particular sin was that I went on a... Uh, an interview broadcast on Fox News with Tucker Carlson. I think it was June 2021. Uh, in this was one of about three or four that I've done with Tucker, not a whole lot, uh, in which he was asking me about the new data coming from Japan on uh, pediatric uh, morbidity and mortality, particularly about uh, focused on myocarditis and pericarditis. And you, Gary, I'm sure you remember that the Japanese data was some of the first that was rigorously performed uh, in which they uh, looked at uh, hospital records uh, very rigorously of uh, young adults and adolescents that had presented to the hospital with myocarditis and pericarditis post-vaccination. And in that, they documented that we had a incidence of clinical myocarditis in that population of between 1 in 1,000 and 1 in 1,500 uh, in young males. And uh, um, so I spoke about this with Tucker, and I made the statement that the government was hiding the data, that they knew that this was happening, uh, and that the risk-benefit ratio for uh, adolescents and young adults uh, did not justify the deployment of the vaccine products. And that apparently was a trigger. Uh, and we now know that all of that that I said on that particular interview, that's what's lovely is in this particular substack, I was able to go and link 
to uh, that the video of that interview. So anybody can go back and look at what I said back then and then review it in, in retrospect with awareness of all the documentation that's come out that shows specifically because of Freedom of Information Act, the CDC hiding, just as I said, the data on myocarditis risk in young adolescents and adults, uh, particularly in males. They absolutely did hide it. Uh, those, if, if anything, the data has, has developed to the point that it appears that the Japanese data may have been an underestimate of the incidence in risk. And uh, uh, that, that uh, everything that I said in that interview, and frankly, everything that I was criticized for by Business Insider and the Washington Post, et cetera, has all been validated. I guess my main sin was being able to discern meaning uh, from early data uh, before uh, the federal health bureaucracy was able to discern meaning in those data and report them to the general audience. So this is, this is how this all got started, was you basically had a bunch of internet wonks sitting at Stanford, working under the umbrella of the Atlantic Council, together with other internet wonks that had specialty capabilities in mapping ideas and information on the internet, and interaction between different communities, uh, um, uh, accepting uh, as truth uh, tags and flags coming from federal government bureaucrats uh, that were determining what uh, the underlying medical truth was, feeding it into this group of, of internet experts who were then feeding it off to other internet experts uh, with no real medical scientific training uh, within these uh, huge Silicon Valley enterprises of Facebook, Twitter, uh, TikTok, uh, et cetera. And those then acting to suppress or deplatform anybody. And then the, the other part of the, all of this that isn't covered often, but Ash Patel really brings it out in his book about government gangsters when he's talking about uh, the events around the Russian hoax and uh, the Steele dossier and uh, some of the subsequent things he encountered as he was investigating these things, uh, is that the way the ecosystem works is that uh, government actors that uh, want to push a certain storyline uh, leak that that frame of reference and that belief system and that storyline to journalists that are allied with the government. They go back to the same ones again and again. So this is Operation Mockingbird uh, in its modern 2.0 version. They then put out stories that are defamatory and they, they advance these theories that, for instance, in my case, that uh, I'm a spreader of mis and disinformation and uh, that my claims about what I did scientifically when I was 28 years old are false and without any merit, uh, without actually looking into my CV, but they just spout this stuff. It gets published in high profile journals. And then those reports from, from reporters who have no scientific technical background 
then are used to justify uh, actions. And um, among those actions are judicial legal actions. So for instance, recently I uh, had developed expert witness testimony for a case uh, involving somebody that was terminated uh, from their job because they would not accept the vaccine. And I was able to show using government documents and NIH publications and CDC publications that in fact, at that point in time, vaccines had between zero and 60% effectiveness at preventing infection and spread. And uh, that there was an NIH study that showed that if you tested people three times a week, you could get 98% sensitivity in detecting uh, whether or not they were infected. So basically testing was much more effective than vaccination if your goal was to prevent the infection and spread of a virus uh, within your community hospital or whatever it was. In uh, that testimony, all based on government documents, was thrown out uh, because the defense cited the attack articles from the New York Times and the Washington Post that asserted that I was a spreader of misinformation, and therefore whatever expert witness testimony I provided was invalid and should be discarded. And that's how this, that's a small example of how this whole ecosystem works is by weaponizing these lies against people. You can completely take them out of uh, any effective discourse and, and neutralize anything they may have to say. And so in the face of that, plus the attacks and, and efforts to uh, pull people's specialty board certification and medical licenses, which is functionally death for anybody that has incurred the million dollars in debt, you know, uh, professional death uh, required to get an MD. Uh, you you were quickly able to uh, um, intimidate any uh, medical care provider who might wish to speak up. So it's I don't I don't hold a grudge against my colleagues. Uh, there are some of them that are particularly vicious in their attacks against me, uh, but uh, it's it's so childish the things they say and do uh, that that I I've learned to not let it bother me too much, but that's how all this works. Were these people ever attacking you or saying things about you when you were working with them? No. Okay. Matter of fact, one of the reasons why my uh, consulting business was successful to the extent it was as sole practitioner was that I was sought after because it was known that I would speak truth to power in many uh, C-suite, executive suite, uh, people in pharma, particularly small biotech, have a problem. They're surrounded by sycophants who tell them whatever they think they uh, want to hear. Uh, and so if you're somebody developing a product, a leader, uh, it's very useful to have someone that will objectively give you their opinion, their true opinion about this, that, or the other thing. And that became a core part of my reputation in business. You mentioned my role on various study section committees uh, for very large contracts, so typically 10 million to a billion uh, is what I would uh, be uh, selected for to chair those committees, the selection committees and peer review committees uh, for the government, DOD and HHS. 
Uh, and the reason was because I was fair and objective and I wasn't part of any one cabal. And and they, the Gubbies knew that they could rely on me to come into a, a assembly of academics and others, which is what a peer review committee is, lead that committee and uh, force them to stay focused on objective analysis rather than bringing in opinions and biases uh, so that the government could select a a true uh a best of of uh a best proposal uh for addressing whatever the thing was often vaccines and biodefense so that that was a core expertise okay i just have one last question well two i hope that you will write a detailed rebuttal to all the publications that libeled you I hope that if you have a legal basis for a libel suit, you bring it, because now you have so much information that can show so, that virtually everything was let, let wrong. Let me speak about that, Gary. Um, so I did uh, sue the Washington Post uh, hmm. for their uh, libel. Uh, and number one, it's extremely difficult to win a defamation case because of New York Times versus Sullivan. Uh, this decision that uh, grants uh, uh, extreme deference to the press when they engage in this activity of targeted defamation, a Supreme Court case. Protected. Yeah. Wikipedia Foundation is protected. Wikipedia editors are not protected. They're anonymous, and you have extreme bias. But that, that yeah. set that aside for a but moment. The, so here's what happened with the Washington Post. Their lawyers came back. What what they said was that I had lied. They actually used the term lied uh, because in my speech in the Lincoln Memorial, I said that these vaccines aren't working. They don't protect against infection, replication, or spread of the virus. And the Washington Post attorneys came back and said, yeah, but uh, this is a lie because the CDC just came out with a report showing that they protect against more severe disease and death. Now that's now disputed, uh, but they took that argument and uh, that was what was submitted to the judge in the case here in Virginia, federal court, Eastern District. And unfortunately, my attorney had had a stroke. He was triply jabbed about a month before, and I wasn't even aware that the case was coming up. Uh, but the Washington Post lawyers certainly were. Uh, and the judge basically took in, you know, in a transaction where I had no defense, uh, the judge took uh, the aggressive position that the attorneys for the Washington Post had presented as gospel truth and just used that to form the judgment. Uh, uh, fortunately, uh, he did not concur with the Washington Post that I'd be held liable for their legal expenses uh, because I was a small actor. But that's that's how this all works. It is the judicial system is very influenced by public opinion. I this has been one of the big reveals to me. And, and the likes of you and I might think that it's an objective way of discerning truth and uh, enforcing the law. That is absolutely not what what the modern judicial system does. You might just just as an aside, and we only have five minutes left. I have one last question. You might want to write a detailed, really scholarly report 
on how scurrilous the reporting is, how biased it is, and detail what they said and the proof that they're wrong. So at least in the court of public opinion, you can have that up on your Substack. You can go on different programs and share that story. You won't get uh, relief in the court, but you'll get it in the in the court of public yeah. opinion. My, yeah, my so fighting this in the court of public opinion. I, I hear you. It's another thing on the list, but I'm more focused on what can I do uh, to not to recover my reputation, uh, uh, but rather what can I do to advance the cause of resisting this tyranny? Uh, and so I would rather spend my time, for instance, I'm about to embark to testify uh, in, to the Romanian legislature uh, recently, I testified in the European Parliament. Uh, then after that, I'll be testifying to the Croatian legislature. And then uh, shortly after, uh, to uh, the British Parliament. Uh, in, in interactions like you and I talking about all this and sharing the information on Substack so that the people can understand what's going on. And uh, I think the more important monograph for me to write is how can we fix the FDA? Because one of the things that's happening right now is uh, there is uh, a growing wave of thinkers who are putting together opinion pieces and position pieces, uh, hoping that uh, those uh, proposed policies might be implemented by a new administration. And I can tell you, Gary, that I've got a, a colleague, a close friend, we're going to be working on another book uh, together, who's a federal investigator, uh, who tells me that there's just been somebody appointed uh, basically akin to an inspector general position for the FDA, and they're going to be going through that uh, nest of, of vipers uh, and, and uh, identifying who's been responsible for these various breaches and holding them accountable legally. Uh, and uh, that I, that's, I think, rather than trying to repair whatever's been done to me, more important is the mission of repairing what has been done to uh, our government and uh, the uh, confidence of all of us in what we previously thought were institutions with integrity that shows both nobility of of thought and selflessness towards others not just yourself you're redeeming the larger issues out there for example not to be discussed now maybe in the future the choices they made with the intervention of that particular vaccine some people may believe was directly related to the pandemic planners goals it may or may not be true and therefore the actual motiva motivations are important to identify, that may be able to come out in the near future or the far future. But you certainly are one of the most important and gifted orators on this issue, and I wish you only the best. And anytime you need a form, you're always welcome here. Thank you very much for being with us today. And I want to thank Thanks the audience for, for, for watching and listening. And remember, my guest, Dr. Robert Malone, uh, he is out there fighting. He's putting himself between the predators for whatever their motivation, and you. So go to a Substack and read his articles, listen to what he has to say. Thank you all for listening and have a nice day.
there's too many of you to cry Brother, brother, brother There's far too many of you to die 